I want to thank Brother Dalton for handling services while I was gone, doing the preaching, and he had all the jobs to do, everything in the office and everything in the pulpit and everything in the singing and all of that uh, Brother Dalton was taken care of. And it's a, just a great relief to me to know that I could leave the pulpit and have someone stand here who exalts God and God alone when he preaches. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm delighted once again to ask you to turn to this chapter. We've been studying this for the past 12 weeks. We won't be finished with it anytime soon. And I'm happy to stay here because we're speaking about the greatest sermon that was ever preached. Some have called the Sermon on the Mount the Manifesto of the Savior. If you wanted to condense all of what the Bible teaches or the complete teaching of Jesus down into three short chapters, this is where you would go. Here we find everything that has to do with the salvation of man in these chapters. We find here what our character should be as Christians, what our service to God should be like. Now, the rest of the Bible develops those themes in more detail, but here in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, we have just a condensation or a summation of the Bible's teachings. And it's so important, this particular portion of Scripture that we're in today, because in these verses, Jesus is declaring that his teachings are consistent with all of the Scripture. Everything that was written before, Jesus maintains that he is teaching exactly the same thing. He didn't come to change anything. He didn't come to add anything to the Word of God. But he intended that his teachings would be the explanation and they would be the fulfillment of what had already been written. And this is something that the people were really wondering at this time because when Jesus preached to them, he was telling them things that were quite different. His interpretation of the Scripture and his expounding of the Scripture was different from what they'd heard from their religious leaders. And so as Jesus was teaching, the thought came to their minds, is he really teaching Scripture? Does he really believe in Moses and the prophets? Just what is it that Jesus thinks about the authority or about the Word of God? And without hesitation, Jesus looked them in the eye and he said to them, I not only believe every word that's written in Scripture, but Jesus says, I am it. I am the fulfillment of it. Jesus is the living word that was sent down from heaven. But now in these four verses in Matthew five seventeen through 20, Jesus gives the people his view of the Holy Scriptures. Now, this is his opinion of what the Bible is, what the Scriptures are. If I tell you that this is my opinion of Scripture, then it may or may not matter to you what I believe about the Bible. But whenever Jesus says that this is my opinion, then you can rest assured that it's not just an opinion, but these are hard and fast facts. It's hard to argue with the person who is the author of Scripture. You can't argue about the author's original intent when he tells you exactly what he thinks about the Word of God. And so this means that whatever Jesus had to say about Scripture must be our opinion too. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And so if you cannot believe Jesus' testimony of Scripture, if your opinion is not his opinion, then don't call yourself a Christian. 
Don't come in here and say that you are a believer in Christ or that you are a believer in God. You can go on and do with your life whatever it is you're going to do because you have no part or lot with Christ if you do not believe and have the same opinion of Holy Scripture as Jesus had. Now, we're going to look a little bit further into this subject this morning. What does Jesus think about Scripture? We're going to read from our text today, and we're going to discuss the subject uh, once again, God's way or no way. So if you'd stand with me, please. We're reading from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse number 17. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and tell, shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you once again today, we thank you for the word that's been read. We thank you for this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. Open our hearts and our understanding to what you would have us to know today about the Holy Scriptures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Two weeks ago, I began an outline on these verses that are intended to show us four different aspects of Scripture that give us Jesus' viewpoint about what was written by Moses and the prophets. Now, in the first sermon, I'm just going to review for just a moment, but we covered this first point, which which is the exaltation of Scripture. Jesus exalted the Holy Scriptures. He had a high view of what he called Moses and the prophets. And so he says in verse number 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And that was a statement that was so necessary at this particular part of Jesus' ministry because the people were very confused about which parts of what they had heard from scribes and Pharisees, which parts really were the Word of God. Now, the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, had so obscured the law, they had so obfuscated the law of God that it was very difficult for the people to know exactly what it was that God said. Now, the Pharisees had added hundreds of commands to the Scripture. What they had done was actually to build a hedge around the Scripture, and the things that they had written were so numerous and so very difficult to claw through that it was very difficult for anyone to really get down to the heart of the law's meaning. And so when Jesus used this term, the law and the prophets, that he came to uphold it, that he came to fulfill it, he was not talking about what the Pharisees had added to it. He was speaking of what Moses and the prophets actually said. And so he wasn't for a moment going to uphold any additions to the Scriptures. But what was truly there, and what was truly intended by the Word of God, he not for a moment was going to slight. And so he wasn't going to change any of it. He wasn't going to lessen it. He wasn't going to weaken it. Jesus came to keep every word of Scripture, and he demanded that the people do likewise. 
And so he lifted up the Scriptures as so supreme that there is no confusion here that the Scriptures truly are the Word of God, that this is the inspired Word of God that's spoken to man. These are the very words that God has spoken to us. So he lifted up the Scriptures, and his intent was that the Scriptures would be the rule of faith and practice. And every writer of the New Testament did the same. They followed the teachings of Jesus. They taught the same things, and they gave no less prominence to the Word of God than did Christ. Now, it's important for us to understand why that Jesus speaks of the law of God and what's meant by the law of God. Now, we covered in that first sermon a couple of weeks ago the three different parts of the law. There's the moral law, the judicial law, and the ceremonial law. The moral law is that part of the writings of Moses that we call the Ten Commandments. And those Ten Commandments are, are the foundation of our relationship between, uh, relationship between man and God and the relationship of man to man. Then the judicial law, that, those were laws that were peculiar to the government of Israel. These were laws of separation, things that set the Jews apart from all the other nations in the world. These were laws that were binding upon Israel as long as they were a nation. Then the third type of laws are laws that we call ceremonial laws. These are laws like uh, laws of worship. They're laws of sacrifice. They were laws that were given as pictures to the Jews or what we might say, a graphic representation of what Christ would do. And so each time that they took an animal and sacrificed and they killed it and shed its blood, that was a picture that Christ would come, that he would die on a cross, and that his blood would be shed for us. So there are those laws of sacrifice, there were laws of feasts that they were to keep, and all of that was contained in the ceremonial law. Now, in all of these parts of the law, the moral law, judicial, and the ceremonial law, we have here an expression of God's character. And these particular laws were given uh, to, to show the people what God would do, what Christ would do. They would speak of the Messiah. And these judicial laws and the ceremonial laws were actually an outgrowth of God's moral law. And so we can say that part of the law, the moral law, is the thing that undergirds the whole Jewish system of worship that explained what Christ would do. Now, the moral law is never going to change. It's always here. We always live by these Ten Commandments. It's foundational for us and for our belief. Whereas judicial laws and ceremonial laws, those things would be done away with when Christ came to completely fulfill all of them. So Jesus then exalted the Scripture, and he taught that every part of it was important. Jesus didn't come to relax anything, and if they thought that he was going to make it easier on them, then the people were simply mistaken. And once that they began to understand the difference between the laws that the Pharisees had added, things that they could keep in their own flesh, once they understood the difference in that and what God actually did demand of them, then they would begin to understand that the only way that the law of God could be perfectly fulfilled for them is through Jesus Christ. He must do that for them. So now we go on to verse number 18, and Jesus says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. 
Now, in the 18th verse, Jesus teaches here another very important truth about God's Word. And this is the preservation of Scripture. The preservation of Scripture. There is a permanence to God's Word. It is so sure that Jesus said that it is as lasting as heaven and earth. Now, God preserves the earth and the heavens by His power. And the same power by which he does preserve heaven and earth is the very same power that he uses to preserve the word. Now, if God were to withdraw his power from this universe today, the universe would be torn apart. And if God were to take away the power that preserves the Scripture, then the Scripture could not last. I mean, here we have in this Bible a word that has been attacked like no other book in the history of mankind. Today, it comes under attack constantly by those who even claim to be Christians, who even claim to be preachers of the Word. They attack the very Word that God has given. And so if God were to withdraw His power to preserve this Word, this book could not stand. But God uses that same power by which heaven and earth are preserved to preserve the Holy Word of God. Jesus says here, "...till heaven and earth pass." And some have interpreted that to mean that sooner will heaven and earth pass away than God's word will pass away. And so the conclusion is that as long as this universe stands, so shall stand the word of God. Now, if we understand that, then we understand the analogy. Just as heaven and earth will be preserved forever, so God's word is preserved forever. There's never going to be a time when God's holy scriptures will no longer be binding upon us. Now, heaven and earth are ruled by the righteousness of God, and the perfect expression of God's righteousness is what we find in His Holy Word. And that's why Jesus is called the living Word of God, because He is perfect righteousness. Now, that, I think, is essential for our understanding as to why the Bible is such a precious book. Now, it seems very strange that there are people in the world and churches even all around us that uh, the Word of God has fallen out of favor with them. Instead, they'll tell you that the Word of God is antiquated. They'll say that God's Word is no longer binding on us, that the Word of God is a relic and it's so old and so unimportant and so uh, completely unrelevant or irrelevant to what we use today that we really don't even need the Word of God anymore. And so they've just moved on from the Bible, and now they have other things that they want to teach. Well, you might have moved on, and there may be churches that have moved on from the Scripture, but I want to assure you that Christ has never moved on from the Word of God. Now, he tells us here in verse number 18, uh, a sanctified or gives a sanctified opinion of God's Word, and he's showing us here that God's Word is never going to go out of style. It will never cease. As long as heaven and earth are around, so will God's Word be binding upon us. And so, in Berean Baptist Church, I promise you that as long as I'm the pastor of this church, the Word of God will be read. I promise you that we're going to preach from the Word of God, that the standards of God's Word will be upheld, that its theme will be proclaimed, the gospel will be preached, and that's because we have a Jesus Christ, a Savior who lives and abides forever. He is the Savior forever. He is the King forever, and so His Word is forever. And we can't give up the Word of God. God has preserved the Word of God. It's been 
2,000 years now since the last words were penned. And what God gave to Moses and the prophets and the apostles and the other writers of Scripture has survived intact right down to this very moment. Now, are you surprised by that? I mean, are you surprised that I can say that after 2,000 years that the Word of God is just as fresh and relevant as the Word that it was at the time that it was first delivered? I mean, does it surprise us to even think that? Well, it shouldn't because Jesus said that it's going to be preserved forever. Now, 2,000 years is not quite forever, is it? And so you can trust that the Word of God is timeless. It's preserved. Now, both the Old and the New Testaments confirm the preservation of God's Word. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, Isaiah writes, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. Peter wrote in the New Testament, he said, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. He also said, but the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Now that is foundational for us. There's one thing that we teach and we preach. There is one thing that we stand upon, and that's this word. See, no, no one's opinion of the Bible really matters if it doesn't square with Christ's opinion. So if pastor so-and-so ever tells you when you go to church that, well, you really don't need your Bible here, we're going to preach out of something else. We, we have a self-help book that we're going to preach from, or today we're going to take a subject out of the newspaper or from a magazine, or if he says, let's give up the Bible, let's go and let's pick up Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church, let's see what he has to say. Well, whenever he does that, then folks, his opinion does not matter. Look at this and see the Word of God. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. Why is it true? Why must we trust the Word of God as being preserved by God? Why is it not a relic? Why is it still relevant to us today? Well, let me give you some reasons for that. First of all, it's relevant because the Word has authority. Now, Christ so clearly and so closely identified himself with Scripture that to deny the Word's authority is to deny Christ himself. You can't discount the Bible without discounting Christ. You can't weaken Scripture without weakening Christ. Now, if Scripture, or if Jesus rather said that we are to search the Scriptures because they testify of him, then what do you think happens if the Word of God no longer has authority? What, what is the testimony of Scripture? What good of it is it if it speaks about Christ and that word isn't true? And so these are things that are so closely connected that when a preacher takes up anything other than the Bible to begin to preach from, then he's no longer preaching Christ. To preach Christ, you have to preach the Scriptures. Now, Christ appealed to the Scriptures as vindication of his own message. I mean, it's, there are numbers of times where... Christ quoted Scripture, and probably none of the references are so important as the one that we read a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 4, and there the temptation of Christ. And three separate temptations in which Satan ran the gamut of all the different types of temptation that, and sin that we can fall into, Jesus came back, and under the authority of the Scripture, he said, it is written. And he said again, it is written. And in the third temptation, he said, it is written. And so what did Christ use to overcome temptation? He used the Word. He took strength from the Word of God. That testimony is not true. If this is not God's Word, then it couldn't have helped him to overcome. 
There was no reason for Jesus to appeal to Scripture if it has no authority. And so there are multiple times in Christ's teachings where he prefaced his remarks, where he reinforced his remarks, or where he, where he concluded his remarks with quotes that come from the Scripture. Now, I believe that this is so important that if you are to receive Christ as your Savior, then you have to accept what Jesus said about Scripture. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is Christ's manifesto. This is an explanation of his kingdom. It's an explanation of life in his kingdom and what is required to be in his kingdom. And so you can't be in the kingdom of God without respecting the law of that kingdom. And so if you say that the Bible no longer has authority, then you say that Christ no longer has authority. And so how could you ever be a part of Christ's kingdom if you don't respect the authority of the king? And so closely connected are these again that Christ depended upon Scripture for authority and Christ depends, and the Scripture itself, I should say, also depends on Christ for its authority. These are two inseparable things. And so to believe in God, to believe in Jesus Christ is to understand that he is the author, he is the fulfiller, and he is the subject of Scripture. And then also our faith is dependent upon the Scripture. The authority of our faith is in the Word of God. Now, we listen to Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2. There he's writing to the Ephesian church and he's explaining how that the blood of Christ has reconciled both the Jew and the Gentile to God. And in verse number 19 of that chapter, he said that both Jews and Gentiles are fellow citizens in Christ. Then listen to what he says in verse number 20. He says, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now what do you suppose that Paul meant when he said that we are built upon the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ? Well, he means that our faith is supported by what the apostles said, by what the prophets said, and of course by what Jesus said. And so the faith, this, this body of faith in which we trust, comes from what they said. And where do we find all that information about what the apostles said? Well, we find it right here in the Word of God. We find it in the Bible. It's the preserved Word of God. And so if what they said was not true, then our faith has no basis. And if what they said is not true, if it's not authoritative, then we have no basis for our faith. You see, for someone to say that the Bible has no relevance today is to say that we have no faith today. It's to say that there is no salvation today. And so the day that the Word of God stopped being relevant is the day that we no longer have salvation. It's the day that we no longer have any faith because we have no support for anything that we believe. So Christ and His Word are the same. And without the Word, we don't have Christ. Now, secondly, the word is absolute. Perhaps we can get some people to agree that, yes, the word is relevant, but the word of God is evolving. Yes, it's truth, but truth evolves. And so, therefore, it's possible that we can add to the word, we can subtract from the word, or otherwise we can modify the word in order to fit our way of thinking. Now, basically... That's what you find in Roman Catholicism. They'll say, well, yes, the Word of God has authority, that's true, but the Word of God is not the absolute final authority. 
And so they believe that the scriptures can be modified by their tradition or by papal bulls or by church councils. And thus you have all kinds of different things that are added to scripture. You have things that are added like the worship of Mary. And so they come up with doctrines like the Immaculate Conception. And that says that Mary was conceived without original sin. And then you have the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. Then you have the doctrine of the assumption of Mary. And that means that Mary didn't actually die, but she was bodily taken into heaven. And then there's also the teaching of Catholicism that Mary is a co-redemptrix. And what that means is that Mary gave her consent for Jesus to die on the cross, and that Mary also suffered with him so that her suffering was part of the redemption of man. Now, all of the popes in the 20th century have affirmed that doctrine. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI affirms that doctrine. Pope Benedict XV said this in the early part of the 20th century. He said, As the Blessed Virgin Mary does not seem to participate in the public life of Jesus Christ, and then suddenly appears at the stations of his cross, she is not there without divine intention. She suffers with her suffering and dying son almost as if she would have died herself. For the salvation of mankind, she gave up her rights as the mother of her son and sacrificed him for the reconciliation of divine justice as far as she was permitted to do. Therefore, one can say, she redeemed with Christ the human race. Friends, there is not one word of that in the Scripture. There's not not one word of any of those doctrines of Mary. There was no immaculate conception. There was no uh, perpetual virginity. Where There was no assumption. And certainly, there is no mediation with Christ for salvation. Now, in the 18th part, or 18th verse of Matthew 5, Jesus said, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now, in that statement that's packed with a lot of different meanings, The one thing that we can surely gather from this is the completeness of the Scriptures. Here Jesus says, one jot or one tittle. What does he mean by that? Well, one jot, or the word jot, that's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. To us, it looks like a comma. It's it's translated, or it's it's the letter that we translate as a Y or an I. Then the tittle was a little mark sort of like a seraph that's put on a letter, like, like for instance, how we would use to d- distinguish a typeface. But what Jesus is saying here is that the Scriptures are so precise that down to the very smallest part of it, it is all God's Word. And it's so precise that this is exactly what God intended to say. And not the least of what God said can be changed in any way. Now, if Jesus told us that he didn't come to change the law of God. If he says, I come not to destroy but to fulfill, how dare anyone say that they have the authority to change the word? If the author will not change the word, then how dare we tamper with God's word? Now, Paul, in writing to the Galatians, said this, and we read it just a moment ago in our scripture reading. He said, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. 
But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Now, what is the gospel? Well, the essence of the gospel is everything that Jesus taught. It's encapsulated in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ and That is the method of our justification. That's the way that we are redeemed. And that message is disseminated throughout all the whole of Scripture so that to change any part of the Scripture is to actually change the gospel of Jesus. Now, isn't that exactly what Roman Catholicism has done? Through their traditions and through their councils and through their bulls, they've changed the gospel. Now, for anyone to say that Mary helps to redeem man They've changed the core of the gospel because they're no longer trusting in the suffering of Christ alone to be the sufficient payment for our sins. Something has been added. And Paul says if anyone adds anything to the gospel, changes the gospel in the least degree, he says they are to be accursed. Now, in the 16th century, the reformers loudly denounced Catholicism by proclaiming this, sola Scriptura. That means Scripture alone. Now, I'm glad that they did that, but what they were doing was only catching up to what the Baptists had been teaching for centuries. Uh, Sola Scriptura simply means that all the practices, all the doctrines that we believe must be found in the Scriptures or they must be logically inferred from the Scriptures. And so the Reformers had five solas that were in the Reformation. The first one was Sola Scriptura, and I've said that means scripture alone. Then sola fide, that means faith alone. Sola gratia, that's grace alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. And sola deo gloria, glory to God alone. Now, each one of those solas, these only, glory to God, for instance, only, each one of them, glory or the uh, sola of faith, sola of faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, all of those have their foundation in that very Scripture alone. And so that tells us if the Word of God is not the final authority, then we have no faith, we have no grace, we have no Christ, and we don't give glory to God. And so you can't say that the Bible is not relevant because, friends, Christianity depends upon it. We rise or we fall with Scripture. We can't change the Word of God to suit us. When we do that, when we make changes to it, that it's no longer God's Word, it becomes man's Word. And when you can find an infallible man, trust that man. Wait just a minute. Didn't we already find an infallible man? He's the God-man. He's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one who upheld the final authority of Scripture. Now, thirdly, and we sum up today's message with this, the word is accurate. Now, with all I've said, this almost goes without saying. If it is authoritative, if it is absolute, if it comes from God, then it has to be accurate. If it's not accurate, then it's forever confirmed in inaccuracy because Jesus said the word of God can't change. So, It doesn't stand to reason that we have an infallible God, and yet we have delivered to us a fallible word. So what do I mean when I say that the word of God is accurate? Well, there are many people who 
believe that they can believe in Christ, and yet it's also possible to reject the accuracy of the Bible. These are people who like to read the New Testament, and they say, well, the Old Testament is really not necessary for us today. And In fact, in the Old Testament, we find many things that are hard to believe, many things that are practically impossible to believe. To believe. I mean, there are things that are written in the Old Testament that just don't square up with modern science. So we can't take the Old Testament as also being the Word of God. Well, I want to remind you that when Jesus was speaking to these people, he wasn't referring to the New Testament at all. He was speaking about Old Testament Scripture. He was speaking about what Moses wrote, what the prophets wrote. So what does that mean to us? Well, it means that if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis in the very beginning, when Scripture affirms that there is a six-day creation and that death did not occur until after the fall of man, that tells us there can be no such thing as evolution. If the genealogies are true, that tells us that we can't have an earth that's millions of years old. It means that there was a universal flood. It means that Moses parted the Red Sea. It means that there were plagues that came upon Egypt. It means that there was a day when the sun stood still. There was a giant that David killed. There was a fire that came down from heaven and consumed a sacrifice. There was an axe head that floated. There were three men who went into a burning fiery furnace and came out untouched from the fires of that flame. There was, there was, there was, there was. And if there wasn't, then Jesus can't be God because whatever Jesus affirmed in the Scriptures as being true, if it's not true, then Jesus can't be God. And so this one statement here that Jesus makes one jot and one tittle, if that's not true, Christ cannot be God because he sinned by confirming the veracity of Old Testament Scripture when Scripture is not actually true. So you see, it's not as simple or so simple to say, well, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he died to save me from my sins. But you know, Jesus was quite the fibber. He didn't know what he was talking about. So to attack the accuracy of the Old Testament is to attack the deity of Jesus Christ. If he's not God, he can't save any of us from our sins. Now the theme of the Old Testament as well as the New is Christ. In the Old Testament particularly, we have the words there that introduce the world to the coming Messiah. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, What purpose other than this proclamation does Scripture have from beginning to end? Messiah, God's Son, was to come and through His sacrifice as an innocent Lamb of God bear and remove the sins of the world, and thus redeem men from eternal death for eternal salvation. For the sake of the Messiah and God's Son, Holy Scripture was written, and for His sake, everything that happened took place. Now listen to that again. For the sake of the Messiah and God's Son, Holy Scripture was written, and for His sake, everything that happened took place. And so if you don't believe that everything that happened took place, then you don't believe in Christ. You don't believe in the Messiah. Well, friends, what I'm telling you is that there's no compromising position here. There's no way that you can get in between this and say that you believe in Christ and at the very same time say that you do not believe in the Holy Scriptures, that you do not believe that the Word of God has authority over us today, that the Word of God need not be read, need not be used in our churches. It's not necessary for us. You cannot take that position and at the same time 
believe in Jesus Christ. You see, you can't receive the Savior without affirming his sinless deity. Jesus makes no mistakes. Now, let me conclude the message or end the message with three final statements for your listening sheet today. There are three possible conclusions that we can come to regarding Jesus and the veracity of the Bible. Conclusion number one is that there are errors in the Bible, but Jesus didn't know it. Now, if Jesus is the omniscient Son of God and he doesn't know something, that makes Jesus ignorant. And if Jesus is ignorant of anything, then he can't be God. Conclusion number two that we could come to is that there are errors in the Bible and Jesus did know it because he is omniscient. He did know it. Well, that makes Jesus dishonest. And if he's dishonest, he's a sinner. And therefore, he can't be God. He can't be the Savior. Or we can come to conclusion number three. There are no errors in the Bible, and Jesus affirmed it. And that makes Jesus God. You see, the Scriptures are written to reveal Jesus. As Martin Luther said, for the sake of the Messiah and God's Son, holy Scripture was written. So I want to ask you today, what what do you believe about the Bible? I mean, do you believe that God's Word is preserved? Do you respect the authority of Scripture? Do you believe that the Scriptures are never going to pass away? Do you accept the authority of God's Word over your life? You see, to obey the Scriptures is to obey Christ because they're one and the same. And so we have God's holy preserved Word and His way. The way of salvation is found in this word, in this perfectly preserved word of God. And if you cannot trust the word, if you do not believe in its authority, if you do not believe in its preservation, then you cannot believe in the Christ of the word. You can't believe one without believing the other. If you trust Christ, you must trust the word of God as the authority for your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this holy, preserved Word of God that's come down to us from Moses, the prophets, from the apostles, from the writers of Scripture through the inspiration of Holy Spirit, and we trust it implicitly in every word that's spoken, and we trust it for the salvation of our souls. I pray, Lord, if there is some person here today who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would go to the Scripture And they would see what Jesus Christ has done for the redemption of man. How that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And as the word of God says, if we put our faith and our trust in that alone, then you give us eternal life. Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to some soul today. There's someone who needs to know more about this, that you would have them meet men in the back of our auditorium that would explain to them more about scriptures, about salvation about baptism, about church membership, about many different things that help them in their Christian life. Lord, we just pray you'd speak to us in this time of invitation today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.